0: Do you have more pictures of your goats than yourself on your phone? Does your vacation time get spent attending goat shows? Can you have a conversation without bringing up dairy goats? Neither can we. So join us as we talk to the country's best breeders, judges, appraisers, and industry experts about all things dairy goats. We are John Kane and Danielle Coroli. Welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat Podcast. Are you busy preparing for kidding season? Take the stress out of meals by getting delicious gray goat BBQ sauces and seasonings to elevate any meal. These products make great gifts for Valentine's Day. Do you want to taste product made from goats in the same herd as the gray goat herself? Try out rich, creamy, and decadent goat milk fudge, made from the girls at Utterly Wicked Farms. Get some sweets and treats for your sweetie at greygoatbbq.com. If you use the code RINGSIDE10, you'll get 10% off of your order today. So again, that's RINGSIDE10 to receive 10% off at checkout. Thank you to the Grey Goat for sponsoring this episode of Ringside. This episode of Ringside is sponsored by Thistlemore Pottery. Are you looking for gifts for the winners or judges at your upcoming shows? Thistlemore Pottery would love to work with you to create pottery with your show's or farm's logo on it. They're happy to make your pottery ideas come to fruition. Keep in mind, the ceramic process can take some time, a minimum of six weeks for custom orders. So be sure to get your orders in today. Handmade mugs make your morning coffee taste that much better. Check out the Thistlemore Etsy store to purchase pottery in stock alongside goat milk soaps Made from the milk of the Thistlemore dairy goats themselves. For free shipping, enter code RINGSIDE. Go to ThistlemorePottery.com today. Link in the show description. What's up, everyone, and welcome to Ringside. I'm John, and as always, I'm joined by, I don't know, maybe you're cleaning out barns, or maybe you're just kind of chilling today, Danielle Carolli.
1: Hello, John. How are you?
0: Oh, i I'm cleaning up burns.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's on my to-do list. Mine will actually be organizing med kits, kitting supplies, taking advantage of the nice weather we finally have. Once again, thank you very much for that cold front. Um, Really appreciate it. But while we have this nice weather, I'm going to be – Organizing my med kits, restocking, figuring out what I need for kidding season.
0: That sounds like a really good game plan that I should probably start doing myself. Uh, well, if you're li- cleaners, you know, that's the first part of it all. Of course. Well, listeners are probably like, didn't he say he was doing that last week and the week before? Well, things happen, folks, okay? And <laughs> we had cold weather coming, and I didn't think it was a really good idea to muck out the pen and then have negative degree weathers. It just didn't sound like a good idea. It sounded like a good chance for pneumonia for the goats. So I opted out and Stop. cleaning up cleaning it out today at least one of the stalls. Yeah, I'm hating my life because it's super deep bedded. And we're switching to shavings, Daniel. I'm going to be picking what? I know. I know. I'm tired of of this deep bedding crap. I've said it for years and I'm sh- I'm switching to shavings and I'm just going to take that extra monetary loss so my back doesn't hate me for the rest of my life.
1: Well, I mean, switching to shavings, but I still have straw down on my pens for this weather. So, you can't you can't really fight it. And I mean, there was the idea I threw out there that I don't think you've put together yet of utilizing the workforce that is in your local area but that's neither here nor there
0: i asked a couple guys on the hockey team but they're like at the end of the season right now uh where they're you know thinking playoffs and and they have games every weekend so it just hasn't worked out but trust me once their season is done i'm gonna be like hey fellas i got some work for us to do
1: perfect Perfect. I look forward to those TikToks because I feel like they will just be golden.
0: Can I just say that we've been killing it on TikTok lately?
1: (laughs) You have. I will give it 95% of that credit. Is all you. I just type, okay, exclamation point, or sure, exclamation point, and let them know.
0: You can't post that?
1: Well, yeah, that one too, but (laughs) I figured the listeners didn't need to hear that.
0: We're <laughs> just opening up the curtain. Exactly. Well, Danielle, if uh, you would like, we have a little bit of ADGA news to get into before we get into our guest today.
1: Perfect. Yes. So for ADGA news, because we record recorded so far in advance, we're a little bit late in our reporting that the ADGA news release of the quarter one mid-year update from the ADGA EC with the State of the Association and the current organizational chart you can find that on the AGA executive committee Facebook page if you're interested in seeing all of those updates there also as of this day for recording which is February 13th for anybody who is listening and doesn't realize what day it is like so many of us at this time of year the ballot deadline for the three ballots that need to be cast by AGDA members is due so you can still Email them today, fax them today. Probably even if you get them to the post office, don't quote me on that one. But if you get them to the post office and postmark them by today,
0: you will be good. Well, I hope everybody took that opportunity to voice their opinions and vote for what they wanted. Um, but yeah, let's let's get right into uh, the guest introduction for this week. If you would like to, Danielle. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I am really excited to have this guest here on our podcast and. While our last couple of guests have joined us from California, Minnesota, Washington, Florida, Maryland, Connecticut, and Ohio, today's guest is actually joining us from a little closer to home this week. In fact, I am actually on location with him. (laughs) She's on location, folks. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. My poor guest, or our poor guest, I should say, has taken my calls many a times in the middle of the night, has seen me at my worst, and saved my herd many a times. In fact, probably a de facto therapist, even though he is not licensed for that. In addition to being (laughs) my veterinarian, he owns and runs Bentley Veterinary Practice, a four-vet exclusively large animal practice serving three states, New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, and providing many different dairy goat herds in our area of veterinary care. Heiner's team are a wealth of knowledge and today we get to pick his brain about the challenges dairy goat breeders face with late gestations and kidding season. So, welcome to the show, Dr. Isaac Angel.
2: Woo-hoo. Daniel, and good to be with you, John. I want to congratulate both of you on the success of your podcast Ringside and it's it's really my pleasure to have a conversation with you and your audience today. So I look forward to whatever
0: questions you might have for me. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. We appreciate it. And I got to say, you're always a fun person to see at Fair, which we'll get into. But first, for the audience, can you start off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit more about yourself and your practice? Yeah,
2: thank you, John. So my name is Dr. Isaac Angel, and we're located uh, here in Stanfordville, New York. We have a vet practice called Bentley Veterinary Practice, as Daniel said, uh, exclusive large animal practice. Seeing seen a myriad of, of farm animal species, but uh, a big component of what we see are, are goats and, and sheep, small ruminants. It was always my dream to become a large animal veterinarian from a very early age. I wanted to become one. In fact, I had a mentor who was our large animal vet. His name was Dr. Douglas Hart. And uh, he, he was one that I aspired to be like. He was one that kind of coached me through my more formative years of schooling. And he's one I pers- uh, pursued, or I followed in his footsteps to Cornell, where I graduated from.
1: Go big rat. Graduated.
2: <laughs> <laughs> vet school there in uh, 2011 ever since i came back to duchess county and and really my objective coming home to duchess county was to do just what i'm doing uh, to try to support local agriculture to try to um, uh, support the whatever remnant of uh, vocational agriculture was left in duchess county and and really uh, pursue my first love of farm animals and so, it's really been a blessing for me to be able not only to do what I set out to do, but also to work with so many I, I knew growing up, and then also to have formed so many uh, wonderful relationships in, in subsequent years.
0: And I'd also like to add that you also have dairy goats, you have Tagenbergs. And I gotta say, uh, you're, you had a milker oh, probably five or six years ago now. It was my first county affair. I believe she went best in show, but she she just about persuaded me to change over to togs because I loved that, though, and still do. Yes,
2: yeah, she was a, a beautiful goat. I believe her full name was uh, Sunkiss uh, Surprise. She was bred by Eleanor Ryder, and uh, Eleanor Ryder, of course, is a, a famous name in the dairy goat world, a wonderful breeder of Toggenbergs. And I know she's, I think she still has some. My, my daughter uh, at the time was kind of interested in goats. Uh, and uh, Eleanor said, you know, I'd really like your daughter to have one of my goats. And so she made a point to pass this goat on to us. And she said it was the one of the best goats she ever bred. Uh, so she, she did go on, I think, to win junior champion at the Dutchess County Fair and subsequently, I think, won grand champion at uh, another time. Unfortunately, though, as all great animals oftentimes do, she got cancer and is on, no longer with us, but it was a great introduction into into the goat world, if you will.
1: Let's talk about that goat world for a little bit, and particularly your dairy goat clients for the vet practice. What do you see in terms of range of goats, herd sizes, purpose, et cetera, mm-hmm. when you're working with your clients?
2: Yeah. So I, I think maybe to give you perspective on that, you have to kind of understand our area a little bit. So well, I, I would say our, our area that we practice in historically has been kind of a vocational egg district. Although now I think it's trending more towards what I'd call like peri-urban farming, where uh, the the vocational egg has given more rise to like a, a backyard breeder, hobbyist. And, and so I've seen some transition even in my career so far. It, it was a unique pleasure for me to work with some herds, such as Coach Farms, another Big goat dairy that I worked with is uh, Susan Cellu's dairy out of uh, Monterey, Mast. and and I would say there's probably a handful of other dairies. It's a great pleasure to work with the Crowley King King's Rock Farm, for example. Uh, tremendous Nubian genetics there. Another herd is uh, my my secretary's Caitlin Mazarones herd, and uh,
1: hook hoofprint cheese company.
2: Yes, another wonderful heard. But I, I would say that kind of touches on some of the bigger dairies I've, I've worked with. I, I think there's a whole handful of backyard farmers, if you will. And then I would say there's another subset of our clientele that have a lot of goats and sheep, which would be called a, a sanctuary or a rescue. So I would say the the frequency in which we see goats is every day.
1: for better or for worse you should have seen his face when he said that
2: (laughs) Uh, but you know where we're seeing these goats at now it's uh varied
0: and and it's uh in their presentation but i would say nevertheless it's always fun to work on these smaller ruminants. speaking of all of your clientele and you're seeing goats every day what is your ideal client to vet relationship is it former, you never hear from them until there's an emergency? Is it the the farmer that lets you know that they have animals kidding at such and such time? Or is it like something in between? What, what would you say is like your client that you are just like, thank you. Thank you.
2: Yes. Yes. I, I do think there is probably what we would consider an ideal relationship. I, I think in today's veterinary world, despite all of most vets I know having big hearts wanting to care for uh, the animals that they can. What we're seeing is that there is kind of a shortage of of assistance in rural areas to large animals. And, And so us that practice large animal medicine do feel a little bit of a pinch sometimes. And so I would say the trend, and certainly this is true in our vet practice, is we really don't take on clients on an emergency basis anymore. I think that's becoming more and more of a prevalent trend that unless you have an established relationship with a vet clinic, you probably cannot get emergency care for your animals. So I I do think a preemptive relationship with your veterinarian is key. The other thing I, I thought would be good to bring up in in this context is that the FDA just uh, released a guidance for the industry. It's called number 263. And this guidance goes into effect on June 12th of this year. And it's, it's been something they've talked about for a long time, but I think it's finally going to be put into effect. And it's going to, uh, this guidance states that there's no longer going to be over-the-counter antibiotics sold off the shelf to the layperson. And so from here on out, June 12th on, you're going to have to have an established relationship with a veterinarian to get those antibiotics. And so I think that speaks to the necessity of having a valid vet-client-patient relationship. And and seeing it as something positive, I I would say, you know, I, I think sometimes people think veterinarian, they're expensive. I, I, I can kind of concur. But at the same time, I think a well-established friendly relationship with the veterinarian can hopefully do, do you and your herd well. And then I think also um, can, if you have a great relationship with your veterinarian, I don't think it always has to be an expensive scenario. If there can be a conversation involved with a, a case or a diagnosis and a treatment, sometimes those relationships actually end up saving you money. So I I would encourage those of you that don't have veterinarians to reach out and and see who you can find in your area and try to set up that relationship sooner than later.
1: Talking on that relationship. So as Dr. Angel and Bentley Vet is my veterinary service and they're, they're who I use, when I have an existing relationship with them, they come out to my farm frequently, sometimes more frequently than others. Sometimes I'm seeing them way more than I should be, but you know, these things happen. But when then we have a relationship, so then I can call and say, Hey, I have these issues. I think I need this. Sometimes that involves a farm call. Sometimes that just says, okay, I'm, you know, Danielle, I know you, I'm more comfortable saying, yes, you can use this antibiotic, or maybe this antibiotic isn't the right one, but you can use this one and I'm comfortable with you administering it. They actually have a secondary company where I can order my um, antibiotics, my drugs, my wormers, everything through them. And then it gets shipped to me. So instead of going through a company and ordering, and then they're contacting them for the prescriptions, I just call up the office and say, this is what I need, and it gets shipped to me. So that's how it works here. And I have to say it works really well, at least from a customer standpoint. Um, I'm sure from that other end, you're not chasing down prescriptions from 20 different companies, trying to fill them and all those things. So that's kind of how it works for me here. And I think I would say it works pretty pretty well and pretty seamlessly.
2: And John, you asked about the ideal client. I would say... You just
0: have to look at Danielle Crowley and she would do <laughs> no. that. She's not going to be able to walk out of that office after this interview. Jeez.
1: <laughs> I don't have my boots on. <laughs> so when I was speaking about obviously seeing too much of my vet, obviously we're starting off a very busy time of year. It's kidding. And you mentioned other small ruminants like sheep and so lamb season as well. And particularly in our area, we're kind of hitting that, Busy time period in this kidding lambing season. What are more of the common issues that you're called upon to treat?
2: You know, uh, we do get called out for a lot of dystocias, and by dystocia I mean trouble births. It, frequently, we're being asked to perform cesareans, uh, which I would say we're starting to get into that season now. And then s- certainly we we see a lot of periparturient diseases such as pregnancy toxemia. No fever, mastitis, uh, and I—I I think, you know, this doesn't really fit with maybe what we're going to talk about today. But certainly, this time of year, we're seeing a lot of pneumonias and, and so forth.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, and especially with this weather that we've had recently. Um, oh yeah,
0: definitely. I w- I would just highlight with people because you know they're thinking kidding season, but. Temperature swings, especially in our part of you know, our neck of the woods, we see a lot of temperature swings, and that with that, you're going to run into pneumonia. So I think as a client, you probably want them to be a little bit observative and notice their animals if they start getting a little raspy or if they start showing some slight signs, especially goats, because we know they don't like to show when they're sick. Uh, just keeping a, a watchful eye so that way you're not getting the emergency call to treat them because they have pneumonia.
2: Sure. No, I think very good point.
0: Obviously, bad things happen and we can't always prepare for every type of emergency and problem. But I feel that a herds management plays a big part of ensuring a happy and healthy kidding season. What are the typical kidding issues that management can heavily impact?
2: Mm, yeah, good good question. I think um, for me, what I want to see is a goat in good body condition. That's an ideal body condition before uh, kidding. I, I think uh, having them on the right feed, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about what that might be, um, by having them on the right feeding protocol so that, that you set them up for success so you can do minimize the amount of pregnancy toxemia that you're seeing so you can minimize the um, amount of milk fever potentially that you're seeing on your farm. I think those are the main things that come to my mind. I I certainly think I, I, this is one that I always get a little bit of a kick out of as being a veterinarian. Is I think you cannot overestimate the value of a good environment for your animals. And, and you, you think oftentimes like to fix a health-related disease process you need medications or you need I guess in this example we can argue you need good feed but I think what's so important is to have a good draft-free clean crisp environment for those animals to thrive in and sometimes I have to laugh you know clients will call me out to fix a problem and I be I can be like to them Okay, yes, we can give your goat antibiotic, but I'd really like you to change out the bedding in here, get the ammonia smell out of your barn, put down some fresh hay and give them some clean water. And and sometimes they say to me, Oh, well, that, that's too much work. just just give them the antibiotics. <laughs> and no, and you know you realize as a veterinarian, like you really can only do so much that you really have to rely on your clients to do the nursing care, the supporting care. And and so I I would just say, you know, like treat, treat your goats like they deserve to be treated. And I think oftentimes that'll alleviate 99% of your issues.
1: No, that's great. And I do kind of think that there are things that maybe because we're in the barn every single day, we don't necessarily contemplate or we don't realize is going on the, we're not recognizing the pneumonia smell that we're seeing or the ammonia smell that we're seeing and smelling in the barn or we're not realizing that these animals are potentially, like we said, at risk for pneumonia and different things like that with the temperature swings as much. And there are so many things that we can do to kind of tweak those programs so that this way we're reducing the risks. And like you said, sometimes it's all about clean water and sometimes it's more about that nutrition and so kind of going into nutrition, I do want to talk because I know it's a big, important aspect of issues like pregnancy toxemia. So I do want to start with talking about pregnancy toxemia because I just want to make sure we have ample time to talk about that because this is definitely a common issue that people face all across the country, especially in that GOAT's last couple of weeks of pregnancy. First, can you kind of give a general synopsis of what pregnancy toxemia would be?
2: Yeah, I think we'll start out with a 30,000 foot view and kind of hone in on the specifics. But I would say the 30,000-foot view is a lack of glucose for the animal or a lack of energy, so that the the animal is in negative energy balance. She's not. She does not have the available nutrients that she needs. Now, more specifically, we can delve in a little bit deeper than that. Uh, in, in the late gestation period of a goat, she has increasing energy demands from her fetuses inside her uterus additionally her rumen is getting compressed because that uterus is growing bigger and bigger and so therefore the amount of feed that she can bring in to supply not only her energy needs but also the needs of her young ones growing inside of her that What she can bring in does not match sometimes all of her demands. And so when they get into a scenario such as that, the body starts saying to itself, we need more energy. We need more glucose. So it mobilizes fat and it brings that fat to the liver. And in the liver, it converts that fat to glucose via a process known as gluconeogenesis. And when that process is working normally, it, it's a very efficient process and it can a goat can make glucose from its fat and, and keep supplying its own needs. But what we see is in scenarios where we have a, either a very skinny goat or a very fat goat, we can run into a situation such as we're talking about now, pregnancy toxemia. And what happens in those scenarios is that the, the fat that's being mobilized starts to overwhelm the, the process in the liver of gluconeogenesis and it kind of gets shut up shut off into this other pathway and we, we uh, it, it's a pathway whereby ketones are made from the excessive fat that are uh, that's getting mobilized and so uh, when when those ketones are produced the the ketones can acidify the blood and make the animal feel very crummy and in those scenarios the the goat starts to go off feed it can uh, have diminished appetite oftentimes in in bad cases of pregnancy toxemia the goat can uh, really become quite weak and and maybe won't uh, have a willingness to rise and and so it's, it's, it can be kind of this vicious cycle where there's a negative energy balance, the goat's trying to correct that process. And in turn, it gets kind of slapped in the face by trying to correct the process with, with too much exuberance. And it, it runs into a situation called pregnancy toxemia, or, or, or and other species we might call it ketosis. Um, so that's, that's kind of a broad picture. And one thing that I just thought I could tell you all about today is there's a new approach to treatment of pregnancy toxemia in, in goats. And this is, I, I think, as with most uh, scientific advancements in the goat community, oftentimes it does some rely on, on um, some scientific endeavors in the cow community. I know goat, goat folks do not ever like to be compared to no, like, but we use, we, use, we use the other ruminant species. the cow as a building block yeah, so often but, for things. So. But one one great study that just came out of Spain is uh, a study about ketosis in cattle, and the typical treatment in, in most ruminants for pregnancy ketonia or ketosis is propylene glycol. Propylene glycol, for the use you that haven't used it before, is kind of a caustic, irritating substance. It's packed full of energy, but oftentimes goats hate it. They kind of choke on it as it's being shoved into their mouth. And it might kind of cause some pharyngeal irritation. It it oftentimes has the risk of being aspirated as they're swallowing it. And so we, we don't always think of propylene glycol in the most favorable light, but there's this new study out of Spain where it says that they compared propylene glycol administration in cattle against giving red wine to the cattle for the treatment of ketosis. And they proved that the red wine was more effective at controlling the ketosis than was the propylene glycol. And I know that can sound kind of like a strange new concept, but where this has tremendous appetite applicability is in the goat community because we all
1: have wine readily <laughs> yes. available. That <laughs> yeah. uh,
2: I, think, I think the thing that I, I think about is in my experience, when I've given propylene to, glycol to goats is that they'll often not like it. First of all, I often notice secondary side effects, you know, that, that aspiration pneumonia developing, or maybe some ruminal acidosis developing, but with the red wine, the goats love it. They, they respond well to it. And then additionally, it, it's, you know, it's a small enough volume in goats where it's affordable. It's an affordable option. And so the suggestion these days is for a goat, one, one suggestion, and certainly I think if you have a valid uh, vet client patient relationship, certainly talk to your own veterinarian about this, but um, 200 mls of red wine twice a day. For about four days will really make a big difference with those goats that have the pregnancy toxemia. So that's a little bit about the treatment. I certainly think we could talk about more of the prevention side of things as well.
1: Yeah. One of the things you mentioned earlier was too skinny or too fat for pregnancy toxemia. But Uh I've also seen an issue with too many kids as well, and more so of impacting the room and space versus the need for nutrition anyway. So the animal just can't eat enough because she doesn't have enough space to keep up with demands. Mm -hmm. So I know when I started out years ago, the idea used to be feed them alfalfa. That's what they need as much alfalfa as possible. And then as we've shifted and had issues and addressed them, it's now more, all right, how do we get energy? let's push carbs. And so can you kind of talk about mm-hmm. what nutritional needs we should be giving our animals to kind of eliminate the risk in that late gestation? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So I, I think there's a couple of thoughts here. One is certainly, thank you for bringing up the multiple kids in a pregnancy leading to a risk factor for pregnancy toxemia. That's very true and, and very real. As far as feeding your goats and and setting them up for success. I think the primary principle that you need to be thinking about is yes, it might be good to flush your goats with good nutrition at the time of breeding to set yourself up for getting multiples, uh, whether that be kind of twins or triplets. A lot of people don't want triplets, but certainly you want more than a single in most uh, uh, small ruminous situations. And so, the concept is you, you often will flush at the, around the time of breeding to get those multiples in a pregnancy. But then thereafter, what you're really striving for is just kind of to maintain that goat until the tail end of her pregnancy. So we certainly don't want them accumulating more and more body fat over the you know first and second trimester of their pregnancy. What we want them to really do is stay at an ideal body condition score of about three out of five. Um, and and then towards the tail end uh, of their pregnancy, when they're getting to have less room in their abdomen for feed to come in, right last about month to three three weeks of their pregnancies, we want to do something we, we call lead feeding. And that's, that's introducing carbohydrates at a greater amount than they've seen throughout the rest of their pregnancy. And what that is allowing uh, the goat to have is a more energy dense food coming into their rumen that now has less room in it because of all the pressures of the uh, uterus getting bigger and bigger. And that more energy dense food will have more calories ultimately translating into more glucose. And so I think that's kind of the trajectory by which you look at feeding your goats and, and gestation is start out time breeding with a lot, transition to little, and then at the tail end start out uh, or finish with kind of a lot of caloric intake uh, to finish them off and get them set up to enter into that new just uh, gest- or new lactation period.
0: One thing that we have tried on our farm uh, starting last year was we actually were reached out back in 2021. Uh, because of the podcast by this company, Stir Enterprises, they have a product that they just started rolling out that year, uh, which was like glucose booster. Sure. Basically, they were, uh, you know, is powdered stuff that top dress on the grain, one and a half ounces per dough. So what I was doing was uh, just top dressing. And if I had so many doughs in a pen, I'd do, you know, a couple scoops, right? and it it worked fine i guess i've never had an issue so i'm like i got they're like can we get your feedback and i'm like i get i guess it worked cuz i didn't have any issues but who knows uh <laughs> do you think that that's another route to go to uh, prevent ketosis or or um is there do you think that that's kind of just like you know whatever like maybe yeah. it works
2: i i don't necessarily think it sounds like foo foo dust to me uh i i think it it fits with the concept I was communicating that basically the goal is in that late gestation period to increase the energy density of the food. And I think you can do that through grain or like you say, a glucose top dress. It it sounds like a reasonable, plausible additive to me. Uh, Certainly maybe it's something I need to get a little bit more educated on myself. I'll, I'll have to, you'll have to provide me with a link to that, uh, Oh yeah, I can do that.
1: Talked a little bit about this, but I know that with my herd, there's many been many different causes of pregnancy toxemia issues, and some of them have been more preventable than others throughout the years. We have made changes to reduce the risk in my herd, and I know that there are definitely things that you can do if you have a herd with a history of pregnancy toxemia. So, besides feed differences, are there are other things we can do to minimize the risk, or other tools in our toolbox? that just kind of help us get ready if we know that pregnancy toxemia is probably an issue we're going to be dealing with.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I, I guess I I, reflecting on that and maybe the situation that we've found your herd in at one point, I think one contributing factor that we found was the alfalfa hay being fed all of gestation Ultimately, probably led to our negative situations at times, and, and I, I think there, for me, the influence that that hay had probably was more associated with just the caloric density of the hay, leading to fatter goats and better gestation. I I think the other con- the other contributing factor that hay had, which I think we should uh, chat about a little bit here in more detail is. It, the alfalfa hay, too, can be uh, fortunate contributor to milk fever, and I think when you see pregnancy toxemia uh, before maybe a, a, a parturition, which then goes into milk fever, it can be kind of like a, a double whammy of badness, which is just a, a challenge to deal with sometimes. So I, I would say those those are the thoughts that come to mind.
1: Right. Yeah. And then the other thing I want to touch on, because you guys did turn me on to it um, mm-hmm. several years ago, was the glucose and ketone meters, oh, yes. that it is a simple blood test that you can run. You can purchase a meter and purchase the ketone strips and you can purchase or you can test your dose. So that this way, if you have a doe that maybe she's a little off feed, but you don't know if what's going on, you can quickly run an assessment and test her ketones really quickly by just drawing a little bit of blood and running it through the machine and seeing whether or not her ketone levels are spiked. And I think that's been a really helpful tool, at least even to just kind of start creating the diagnostic picture when I'm on the phone with you and saying, okay, I have a dough a little off, I checked your ketones, they're normal, or maybe they're a little high, I would say. Can we back up the, what would be the normal ranges if you're using these machines, just so everybody's aware?
2: Okay, so we're looking at the blood ketone reader that measures a a certain ketone in the blood called beta-hydroxybutyrate. And then that um, ketone should be below 3.4. If it's above 3.4, and, and that's kind of like a clinical case of pregnancy toxin. If it's above 3.4, we treat those animals aggressively as, as pregnancy toxin. Now, if, if, you, if you have a level of like 1.2, that's also considered a, a case of subclinical. Uh, pregnancy toxemia. And we probably would still want to address that to some degree, but we're, it's not going to elicit so much concern that we need to put all our, our irons in the fire to get this animal back up and going. But certainly would you know, a, a, an animal that has more of a subclinical case, we would suggest certainly adding probably more grain to the diet, maybe even trying some of that red wine to increase the <laughs> amount of uh, calories going into that goat as well but um, certainly the the blood ketone reader has been a, a wonderful godsend in terms of getting to these animals early and in, in, uh, in the we can proceed forward with
1: oh no i 100 percent agree because we used to mess around with the ketone strips and you're waiting for an animal to pee you're trying to catch it you're trying to read the levels and it does not always work out as quickly as being able to draw
0: the blood. Since we're talking about having those issues, I kind of want to highlight real quick, another big issue that we see this time of year with kidding season is milk fever, which is different than pregnancy toxemia, but very often is confused or considered the same thing. Can you explain milk fever and, and also how it's different than pregnancy toxemia and how people can go up treating it and cause you can't really prevent it. Right.
2: Yeah, good question, John. Um, So just as much as we thought of pregnancy toxemia as being a deficiency of glucose, in in the situation of milk fever, really that's just a deficiency of calcium and probably more appropriately, we'd call that hypocalcemia. Now in in goats, this occurs very commonly after the dough freshens in. so I certainly should say not as commonly as, say, in cattle, where it's, it's a more frequent occurrence. But it, in goats, if, if they're not set up right, they can certainly experience this condition. Now, why, why would they have a deficiency of calcium right after they've given birth? One is they've just put tremendous amount of bodily strain into uh, giving birth. And certainly every muscle in your body is going to be utilizing calcium to contract and that there's no bigger contractions than what are occurring during birthing. The second thing is all of a sudden, that goat has a tremendous need of calcium to be put into her milk. And when that uh, dough starts to lactate, she is just dumping a tremendous amount of calcium into that milk as just a a natural um, process of milk production. So, you know, there are some good treatments, luckily very simple treatments for milk fever. And and the most simple treatment we often think of is calcium sub-Q, calcium gluconate underneath the skin. And, uh, you know, you can always have a conversation with your veterinarian about how much to give. Certainly we can give IV, Calcium in cases where uh, the case is, is you know a severe case and the the goat is down and cannot get back up. But you you talk about prevention, and I would say to me that's really where uh, our objectives need to lie with uh, milk fever because it is more or less a preventable disease. And and the the way we can think about this in, is this a goat does not know that she's going to need to pr- have a lot of calcium available as soon as she gives birth. And so we can set that goat up to know that she needs to have some calcium available at the time of birth. And the way we do this is, is simply this. We, we acidify the blood and the body says, I don't, I don't like to have acidified blood. So it, it neutralizes the blood pH with calcium from the bones. And you can say, oh, that sounds like a complicated scientific theory. But it really boils down to a couple of things. One thing is you minimize the amount of potassium in their diet. And what has a lot of potassium? Alfalfa hay. And so if we can cut alfalfa hay out of their diet, that minimizes the amount of potassium going into the goat which is essentially something that, that will, um, you know, alkalize the blood. And what we want is kind of more of an acidified blood. So subtracting that out of their diet, all of a sudden kind of sets up their blood to say, you know, we're a little bit more acidic in here. We want to mobilize some calcium from the bones to neutralize the pH. And so that's, that's kind of a working concept. You can also add anionic salts into the goat's diet. Uh, sub, something such as calcium chloride. And, and there's a myriad of these different salts that uh, we can talk about at length, but you can essentially give a, an anionic salt to your goat to also acidify the blood and mobilize calcium. So I, I hope that's kind of not a too, too complicated of an explanation, but the long and short of it is minimize alfalfa hay, prefresh, and, uh, that probably will get you 99% on the way there in, in, in goats.
0: Are the telltale signs for goats, because I've never had one with milk fever, are the telltale signs the same as uh, dairy cows where they get all goosenecked, cold ears, uh, down, obviously? Is is that what you're looking for for those people at home?
2: Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, you are seeing kind of this, a similar uh, display of signs as you would in dairy cows. Certainly uh, lethargy, recumbency, they they will get the cold ears, They'll, they can get kind of the rye neck on some occasion, but I think in goats you often will just kind of notice them being down and unable to rise as a better, a better uh, presentation. And I think also a component of it is they just become inaffident. I, I feel like I've seen that a lot in goats with milk fever.
1: Now I want to talk about two things really quick. One is more of an observation, but I find sometimes my does who are more off feed after kidding and possibly more at risk for milk fever do tend to like my medicated meat goat feed, which has the ammonium chloride. So it's probably making kind of has that calcium chloride. Correct. Am I kind of on the, Uh like are they almost naturally going towards that because it's messing with their blood and making it more acidic?
2: Yeah. You know, that's an interesting concept to talk about, Danielle. Um, usually we're thinking about kind of this acidification of the animal pre-fresh. Okay. Post-fresh, we're kind of trying to think more about how to supplement that calcium in their diet, because at that point they they need that calcium and it's it's no longer necessarily about kind of teaching them that they need it. So I'm wondering if there might be another factor in there that making them think they want to eat that uh, medicated feed.
1: Yeah. No. Okay. That makes sense. And then my next question is you mentioned sub Q versus IV. Mm -hmm. And obviously some of this is conversations with your vet. Calcium always scares me because if you give it too fast, which is why this is an important conversation to have with your vet, it can cause heart issues. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so, Talk to me about the difference between sub-Q and IV a little bit.
2: Yeah, so uh, yeah, Danielle is correct that if you give calcium IV quickly, it can cause a cardiac arrhythmia, and that cardiac arrhythmia can lead to death. Now, that sounds scary. I, I don't think I I have yet to see in my career, knock on wood, that that <laughs> an animal has died from IV administration of. Calcium in my watch, and I don't think I've even seen a client kill one yet. But it's a, it's definitely a real possibility. It's it's really about the speed in which you give that calcium. As long as you're mm-hmm. doing it slowly, uh, it, it should work out just fine. A safer and, and far better option, probably for the the more novice go owner who hasn't had many of these uh, no fever cases, would be to give it sub Q. And the reason we give it sub Q is for slow absorption over time. And, and as you know, it's not going to flood the bloodstream when it's given sub Q in a manner that's going to cause the cardiac arrhythmia. It's just a very safe way of administering it. And it, it, for the most part, I would say for a mild case of milk fever, it's very effective. And, and for, you know, some of those goats that have gone into a um, prolonged labor and. that, just look worn out after giving birth, I will on occasion give some sub-Q calcium just prophylactically thinking they have probably expended their stores and that they might need a, a just a little extra boost. And so I, I think that would be a, a very fitting thing to do in some circumstances.
0: And one thing that uh, people can look for, uh, I, I remember this with cows is uh, when we were administering calcium, if we were going a little too fast, uh, they start getting a little bit heavier breathing, um, open mouth breathing, and then you just slow it right down and they, they quit right away. So uh, that's one sign, at least that I can remember. I might be wrong, totally wrong here. It might have just been a couple times that we saw it and it was just by accident.
2: <laughs> sure, I think you certainly look for those changes in the body. If you're a keen observer, the body will tell you a lot about you doing right or wrong
0: moving forward here another issue that everybody sees during kidding season is uh pregnancy pregnancy dystocia uh that requires a lot of pulling and manipulation or even c-sections what would you say is your rule of thumb for handling a hard kidding when should we call the vet out Mm,
2: yeah great question so I've learned this uh, rule from Dr. Mary Smith at Cornell, and she always would teach us. She said, you you use the rule of a half an hour. From the time the goat starts laboring and you see that water sack, a half an hour later, there should be a baby on the ground. And after that first baby, if it has a multiple uh, inside, the next baby should also be born within half an hour. So if you see that time frame getting pushed out further and further, if it's been 45 minutes an hour since you saw the water sack appear, it, it is time for intervention in some way. And I, I don't know if it's right then and there that you need to call the veterinarian. I would say and suggest to you that some of these problems that a goat experiences during the birthing process are, are simply remedied with a little personal confidence. And what I I would suggest is that if you can clean up your hand in a nice manner, put on a latex glove, I often like latex gloves over a a sleeve, uh, a rectal sleeve, is that you clean up your hand nicely, clean up the vulva of the goat with warm soapy water, put nice lube on your glove, and you can go into the, the birth canal and just see, is there anything that's abnormal? And I would say the number one thing I tell people when they call me in a panic, asking about what's going on with the birthing and, and is there a problem here and should I have you out? I, I'll just tell them, just take a pause. Just put your hand inside that birth canal. And, and I think oftentimes people put their hand in there and they feel like all of a sudden they need to do a million and one things to get that goat kid out and they're panicked. And, and I just say, put your hand in there and leave it there. Don't do anything and just kind of think about where you're at, what you might be feeling. And if you start to feel a piece of a baby goat coming out, think about what it is and and don't try to change it right away. Just kind of get a mental picture in your mind about what you're feeling. And I, I think for me, that's probably saved me more hours in bed than anything else <laughs> I've ever <laughs> like don't panic think about what you're doing and and realize that this baby's still probably connected to the umbilical cord and probably has a pretty large margin of time before it needs to get out on the ground and that with just a little patience you'll you'll get it out and and it'll be fine and and uh i i think the other thought that i often like to share with goat owners is like they say well i don't want to go in i might hurt the goat i might I might, um, you know, contaminate her. And, and what I say is this, you can check a goat as many times as you want, so long as you're clean about it. So, you know, wash that vulva up very nicely. Uh, put some nice lube on your glove and go in there and, and, and see how the goat's progressing. As long as you're nice and sterile about it, you're not really risking a whole lot checking a goat. And, and the, I know this might be a bad corollary to draw on a goat show, but if you ever if you ever go to a human maternity uh, ward, you'll you'll often uh, be exposed to uh, women that are having birth. They'll, they'll get checked many times before that baby is actually out. And so I, I just bring that as kind of like a human connection to what we're doing here. It's it's not like I'm suggesting something foreign to what our species endures on a, on a normal, normal birthing basis.
1: No, that's a good point. And it does kind of, some people go, Oh, should I go in yet? Should I go in yet? And oftentimes, I mean, that 30 minute rule is a really good rule of thumb. I know I almost put a timer on my clock and go, all right, if nothing's happening by then, this timer goes off, sorry, girls, this is what's happening. And you know, pretend the threat of my timer is going to change anything, but um, it is. I find it is so much better if you go in and are a little bit more preemptive than reactive, and you're not dealing with the doe who's been laboring for four hours, six hours. She's only had an hour of active labor before you really start working those babies out and I think that allows recovery to happen a lot quicker than if you just wait and go okay well she pushed and you know I'm just going to let it kind of happen and see what goes on.
2: Sure no I, I think rightly so I, I think just as much as you shouldn't dive right in the moment you see a water sack or a water bag coming out of the goat being, being willing to take that next step and being brave enough to say, it's okay. As long as I'm clean about it, I'll go in and figure this out. I think that's a far better scenario than letting that go suffer for hours upon hours, trying to do it herself.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I agree because, and the other thing is let's say I go in and I were to call, I go, okay, I can't deliver this kid. Mm -hmm. And, 95% Ninety-five percent of the time, either I can deliver it or somebody else can. So when you get a call from me saying there's something out wrong with this kidding, you know personally that this is going to be a fun one. With that, I also know roughly the timeline of you getting or one of your vets getting to me, and that's something you also, as a breeder, have to consider. When I call my vet, how far is how far are they from me? If they're literally sitting by the phone, twiddling their thumbs and not doing anything else. That timeline too, and you have to realize that that'll be part of this timeline. So if you're three hours into her labor, she's not progressing and then you decide to call your vet and they're an hour out, all of a sudden you're on hour four or hour five before they can even get to you and help your dough. So there's there's definitely a fine line and a balance, I would say.
2: And I I think maybe just a little sub- point to put in here is that it's okay to check your goat and do nothing right if you, if you feel like the head and the two feet are there right do nothing and let it let it come out on its own but at least you know there's a head and two feet oh exactly mm-hmm.
1: yeah so now are there ways we can mitigate risks with dystocia i mean obviously we talked about kind of checking in but during that last stage of pregnancy other random things we can do I mean, I I feel personally that we're seeing a lot of increased social risk with maybe a smaller goats, um, maybe more the Nigerian dwarf breed. I'm hearing a lot, mm-hmm. and um, but are there ways we can mitigate risks, or what do we look for to kind of make sure that we're ensuring as successful and as easy a birth as possible?
2: Yeah, so I I would say that the biggest thing that comes to my mind right offhand is an overconditioned goat is at risk for not only pregnancy, toxemia, but also for dystocia and that obese animal with all that abdominal fat is just going to have a tighter birth canal for those baby goats to come out. And, and so I would say I cannot overemphasize the, the need for an, an ideal body condition going into uh, the burden season. That, that's first and foremost. I, I do think when anytime you're talking about multiple births, obviously the risk of dystocia goes up. You could talk about maybe not flushing your goats so hard at the breeding season next cycle. Uh, but probably by the time you get to the birthing season, it, it's too late to be thinking about all of yeah. that. Um, and so I would the, the other thing that just comes to my mind is, okay, if you're going to have problems, what are some good tools to have on hand? It, it uh, Inevitably, if you have goats, a lot of goats, you're gonna have birthing issues. And so if, if I may, I might just tell you a few ideas I, Go I would it. share with you. Uh, you know, people can think about their typical birthing kit of having uh, you know rectal sleeves, OB sleeves in it, and maybe some latex gloves, some lube, that's all well and good. But what I'm gonna tell you about today are are three things that you should have that you might have never thought you need for your birthing tip. My first suggestion to you is that you need a 25-gauge needle. My second thought is that you should have a small tube. We we call these equine stallion catheters. You should have one of those. And the third thing you should have is a cordless, wet-dry shop vac. Now you could say, "Oh, that sounds like quite an assortment there, Doctor Angel." What are you thinking? Well, I'll tell you. I, I think one of the biggest things I see as a veterinarian is you—you you go through this trouble of getting uh, the baby out of the goat, and it's laying there, and you don't can't tell whether it's breathing or not. You're trying to flop it around, swing it around your head, trying to get the mucus out of it, trying to get to breathe. You're doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And like your goal at that point is you just want a live baby. And so what I would suggest is with these three things I just told you about, your your chances of success have just gone up substantially. And what I would do if you have that weak little baby that just come out of the birth canal and can't really tell whether it's breathing or not, one of the first things I would do is I put that 25-gauge needle right in the filtrum of the nose, right bef- between mm. the... Of yeah, them. And that stimulates respiration. There's a little acupuncture point there. And it's amazing how many of those goats, as soon as you put the needle in the nose, take a breath. And there's not really, in my experience, yes, maybe there's an exact acupuncture placement for that needle. But I would say if you get it close, it's amazing how many of those animals respond. The second thing I would say, as far as my small tube and vacuum are concerned, is that Airway is everything. If you have a good airway, all of a sudden that animal takes one decent breath, and their lungs fill up with oxygen, and they can start breathing. But if you can't give them that first good breath, all of a sudden your risk of of just kind of them succumbing to uh, hypoxia increases. And so what I would suggest is, as soon as that baby's born, you put that needle in the nose, you turn on your vacuum, and you cup your hand around the nozzle of that vacuum to your small tube and you use that small tube to suction out the nostrils, to suction out the back of the throat of the baby goat that you, you know, just suck all that mucus away. And that kind of eliminates the need for swinging that, that baby goat around the room and trying to get the mucus to flow out of it and using your blue blue suction ball that's not going to get more than an ML of solution out at a time. I, I think those three things in my mind can tremendously increase your success during a birthing process, keeping your, your newborn kids alive. And then if I might add just one other little tidbit of information that I think the, there's different snares on the market, but the one that I would say has saved me time and time again is what we call just a simple wire snare for pigs and for small ruminants. And I think you can buy these off NASCO or most most uh, farm supply stores, but a, a simple wire snare that's disposable is probably the best tool I've ever used in, in dystocias for uh, small ruminants. Those are some new, maybe new or different thoughts for you.
1: I remember when we had a few kids we have the quad situation with the sick dough and you pulled out that uh your vacuum suction thing and it was I mean it basically resembles almost like when you go to the dentist and they're in your mouth and getting all that the extra gunk out but we got two kids breathing from that and it's and it's a really handy handy tool to have and also if you're looking kind of thinking more of the like oh my gosh those airways are not clear and more of that like CPR section. Obviously you're not breathing into it, but you're reducing your risk of zoonotic diseases as well. You're not making contact with that goat if you're having risks of things like chlamydia and different things like that, that maybe you shouldn't be having contact, direct contact trying to do like mouth to mouth or anything yeah. like that. So just another thing to think about that it does help if you're in a potential situation like that with risk of zoonotic diseases.
0: I wasn't aware that that needle that people use for calf noses to get them to breathe. I didn't realize that that correlated with goats. So that's good to know. There's actually a lot of YouTube videos for listeners out there that can look up the needle method for getting calves to breathe and it'll correlate to goats. So that's really cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah.
1: We've talked about a wide variety of different things. What would you say would be your best advice for breeders to have the most success, to be the most successful in an emergency situation.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it probably resemble the advice I give to my new colleagues, uh, new veterinary colleagues when they join our practice. And I would say uh, the first tenet of practicing large animal medicine where you're often in the field by yourself with no one to call for help is my first tenant is do not panic. It's all going to work out. If you just can breathe and and i think that the same is true for a goat owner if you can take a moment to just kind of take uh, stock in your situation and, and just think it through in a rational way you'll have a lot better success of, of having a good outcome than if you were to kind of freak out right from the very beginning and i, I think you couple that with setting yourself up for success having your animals nice clean Environment, doing all the feeding uh, right, to making sure you have your emergency supplies, and then following up with a a good vet-client-patient relationship. That where you know maybe if you're in the middle of that emergency birthing, you can get your veterinarian on the phone and at least chat with them about is this a really a big concern at this point or not. And um, I I think you know at least in my mind uh, that that would set you up for the greatest amount of success this this program
0: great advice Um, so i just kind of want to veer off for a second dr Mm -hmm. angel i want to talk about how every summer you transform into the incredible dr pole that's for the whole week of dutchess county fair for those not aware uh, there's episodes of dr pole where he's the vet to check in animals and and check out uh, any animals having emergencies at the Isabella County Fair in Michigan? Yeah, so every every Dutchess County Fair since I've been there, you're there not only to show your Ayrshire's uh, cows, for people that aren't aware, uh, <laughs> but you're also there with your family. You're also on call. And if something happens, uh, exhibitors get you to check out their animals and see if there's a fix. Uh, what do you love most about working fair week?
2: Yeah. Thank you, John, for that, um, thought. It's really a great honor for me to be able to be the veterinarian at the Dutchess County Fair. Uh, this was something my mentor, Dr. Hart did before me. And, and so to some degree I follow in his footsteps and legacy, but for me, what is so special about being the vet at the Dutchess County Fair is, is really you all, all my clientele and, and friends and connections. And, uh, you know, I, I think the fair, first of all, is, is a wonderful place of community and camaraderie. Uh, one where we can find many of us with like mind uh, doing something that we all love and that's per- our pursuit of agriculture and, and our love of animals. And so I, I would say it, it just great, brings me great joy to be involved in an in agricultural community that we're all kind of of one mind, we're all kind of there with one purpose that week. For me in particular, it's a special feeling to feel like to some degree, I, I'm connected with a lot of those exhibitors. I, I don't know what percentage, but a tremendous amount of them uh, through my, my work or, or maybe just uh, con- connections in the agricultural community, but just to feel part of something. And to be able to not only be part of something, but also to to be able to contribute and give something back, to me, that's that's just the pinnacle of success in my mind.
0: Very well said. Danielle, did you want to add anything before we wrap up?
1: No, I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share your knowledge. I mean... As we've done this podcast, I keep kind of going, oh, my vet, my vet, and talking about the practice and different things that you and your um, other veterinarians have kind of contributed to my farm. And so I'm really excited to share that. And I'm so grateful that you took the time and helped us out, especially as we're getting into kidding season. And now I'm also going to go to the liquor store, add some bottles of wine, maybe like this is good I think I can expense this now nobody has to know that it's not medicine um, the, whole, the wine stores are going to be so happy um, it is up. but no seriously thank you um, we really appreciate it and can you tell our listeners if they want to learn more about Bentley pra- veterinary practice where they can find you online out in the world
2: Yeah. Thank you. Um, It's really been my pleasure and honor to be with you all today. And our our vet practice is called Bentley Veterinary Practice. We're located in Stanfordville, New York. And our website is BentleyVeterinaryPractice.com. For any of you that would like to reach out to us, we'd always love to hear
0: from you. Dr. Isaac Angel, thank you so much for joining us. And Danielle, we also have some social medias that we use to encourage people to get even more into their goat farm by listening so where can they find our social media
1: you can find us on facebook by searching ringside and american dairy goat podcast we are on instagram at ringside underscore Goat underscore podcast you can find us on tiktok if you search ringside podcast and we do have our website dairygoatpodcast.com as well as be sure to subscribe or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, if you don't mind, be sure to give us a rating or a review. It really helps us out, and we appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to The Great Goat and Thistlemore Pottery for sponsoring this episode of Ringside. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the show, Dr. Angel. We'll see you soon. And for everybody else, this has been Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. I'm John.
1: And I'm Danielle.
0: We'll catch you on the next one. Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast, is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.